0: This is Brian Geister, and I want to express my gratitude for you tuning in to Holocaust Survivor Next Generation podcast. My podcast series capturing some of the most enduring stories in history around adversity, perseverance, hard work, entrepreneurship, and generosity that truly have never been shared from the first generation, or maybe better said, the second generation of Holocaust survivors around the world. As a third generation family member whose grandparents were both Holocaust survivors from Poland and Austria, the values that were passed down to me from my father around work ethic, integrity, supporting the Jewish community, and overcoming all odds have shaped the way that I see the world and hopefully my opportunity to make a positive impact.
1: That six million, six million for them is just a statistic. It's a number. But the real tragedy is this. Just think of it. It's not only the six million that we lost, but it is the generations that will never happen after that.
0: To that end, on my first podcast, it is truly my privilege to introduce the remarkable story of Gabe Aram, a close friend, business leader, and philanthropist that I truly admire who has spent his entire life focused on capturing the stories of the most philanthropic individuals in the world through his company and leading publication, Lifestyle Magazine, while so often working behind the scenes to solve many of the world's greatest challenges. Gabe and the family experience in surviving the Holocaust admittedly had me in tears throughout my interview. I hope that his story is as impactful for you as it has been for me. Gabe, it's an honor and privilege to have you on the podcast today. I know you're born in Hungary. Would you kindly share a little bit about your family's background in Europe and what it was like to be born after World War II? My family comes from
1: Eastern Hungary. I'm very close to what today is the border with the Ukraine in an area that is called the Carpathian Mountains. Um, my family has been living in Hungary since the 17th century. Uh, all of my ancestors, as far as I know, were very observant Jews. Uh, in fact, my father enrolled in uh, a school on Yeshiva in 1936 to study. Uh, to the it was a very brief story. 1936, uh, my father's cousin, whose name was Itzhak Schwartz, he attended the same school. And one day, he came to my dad and said, uh, my dad's Hebrew name was Akiva. And he said, Akiva, you know, uh, this Hitler doesn't look good. You should get out of here. So my father quite naively asked him, he said, where would you go? He said, let's go to Switzerland. My father was very puzzled and said, why Switzerland? And uh, he said, because Switzerland somehow manages to stay out of all the wars. So it looks like a safe place. So my father asked him, OK, do you have any money to get there? He said, no. My father asked, do you have a passport? He answered, no. So my father looked at them and said, so we're in Hungary. How will we get there? And itzak looked back and said, of course, we'll walk. And my father wasn't too crazy about the idea. So Yitzhak said, I'll give you two days to think it over. Two days later, itzak comes back. And my dad said, listen, I have elderly parents. Um, I, I can't just leave them. And I said, well, bless you. They hugged each other, Itzhak walked out the door and disappeared off the face of the earth. When I was about five or six years old, frequently in our town in Hungary, I was invited to birthday parties. And after one of the birthday parties, I was walking on the main street with my dad holding his hand. And I said, Dad, can I ask you a question? He said, Sure. said, so "Dad, how come everybody at the birthday party had grandparents I mean better are my grandparents? And he answered with only two words. He said they died. Well I was a very curious kid and I asked him were they old? And he said no. But he wouldn't volunteer any further information. I would then ask were they sick? He said no. It didn't make sense to me. They were not old, they were not sick. And they died. So I said, Dad, where did they die? And he said, in you know, a camp. Now I was completely confused. Every summer I rushed to camp, and camp was a fun place. So I said, Dad, you have to explain it to me. And he said, well, it wasn't that kind of camp. It had uh, a fence around it, and it had more fire. And I looked at him, and I said, uh, like a prison? He said, yes. So I asked the obvious next question, that were they bad people? Only bad people end up in prison behind barbed wire. My father didn't really volunteer much information. But slowly over the years, I tried to pull it out of my mom, who survived the Auschwitz death camp, and also my dad. And slowly, slowly, I tried to piece together this puzzle, uh, but it was very difficult to get them to talk about mm-hmm. what they had been through and how they lost their families. And I just couldn't accept it in my young mind. So one day I said to my dad, dad, is there anybody alive from your family? And my father said, I don't know, but in my heart, my dad said, in my heart, I feel that he is the one who left the yeshiva supposedly from Switzerland in 1936, he may be alive. I sort of took this with me and I put it in the back of my mind. I was at a trade fair with my wife in Switzerland. The year was 1989. And we went to resort for a couple of days in the middle of nowhere next to a mountain called the Jungfraujoch in a place called Interlaken. As we're checking into the hotel, a man comes over to me and calls my name and speaks to me in English. I was surprised because I didn't know anybody there. And it turns out that he saw my photograph in magazines. So somehow he put two and two together and introduced himself. His name was uh, May Larner, uh, he owned the hotel. At the next village, on the mountain, it was called uh, the Silver Moon. And he invited my wife and I for lunch. My wife and I. So we rented a car and he drove on to follow them. And we arrived, we arrived at this lovely hotel. And he asked, would you like to eat inside or outside? So I said, you know, we prefer outside. It was a pretty day and the hotel was at the foot of this magnificent mountain called the Yldfrau There was a small garden behind the hotel, and when we went out with my wife, I noticed in the corner of my eye that there was a table with a short gentleman sitting next to the table with white hair, and he was writing with the fountain pen. Some papers. And as we were sitting down, a gust of wind came and uh, blew the papers all over the uh, garden. So I went to help with my wife to pick them up. And when I handed it to the old man, I realized he, he was Yitzhak Shamir, the former prime minister of Israel. As it happened, uh, he was writing his memoirs in the garden. So when the hotel's owner, Mr. Wagner, came out to serve our lunch, uh, and was telling us about Jewish life in Switzerland. And at some point, he said something to the effect that he knew every Jew who ever came to Switzerland. So I looked at them and said, Mr. Wagner, you know, I have a story to tell you, and I related a short version of the story about Yitzhak Schwartz. And I said, it would be amazing to find out if he related to Switzerland. And he said, young man, this is Switzerland. Everything is recorded here. He said, there's actually a big black book in burned the capital, uh, at the Interior Ministry. Can I know somebody there? Let me make some calls. I write down on this napkin everything you know about these subjects. So I don't know whatever I knew. And with that, uh, we finished lunch, and we headed back to our hotel. Next morning, about quarter to seven, somebody's banging on a hotel door. And I opened the door, and there is Mr. Wagner from the restaurant, reading a piece of paper. He said, I found someone who knows something about your missing relative. I said, okay. And he said, wait, well, here's this number. And so they him. I said, they oh, called I said, it's not even 7-in. Oh, they're up, they're up. I said, but I don't speak German. Well, he said, that's okay. They speak English call. So I dialed in, somebody picks it up speaks to me in German, and I said, excuse me, can I speak English? Oh, the man said, of course, of course. Oh, you must the the young man who's looking for his missing relative. I said, yes, I am. The man on the phone says, could you tell me about him? what do you know? And I repeat that his name is in such words. When he was young, he had red hair, and he was born in 1920 in Hungary. And whatever, you ain't all told time. And I said, huh, oh, that sounds a lot like my father anymore. So I said, oh my goodness, would you tell me when did he get to Switzerland? What did he do here? And when did he die? And he said, no, oh, he didn't die. He said, he's standing next to me. Would you like to speak with him? And with this, he answered the phone over to a man who speaks to me in Hungarian. And he asked me for my name my name and he said what was your father's Hebrew name? I said his name was Akiva and his answer is it cannot be. I said I'm sorry I, I know my father's name and he said okay who, what was your grandfather's name? in Hebrew and I told him Abraham yes I'm actually named after him. He said it cannot be. Once again I said oh, excuse me I knew the name of my grandfather. He said, I think it's a mistake. I'm gonna ask you one more question, and if you answer incorrectly, you are who you say you are. I said, please ask. He said, What was the name of your grandmother? And I said, Her name was Anna. He said, no, 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 What did they call her in the village? I said, Well, her name in the village was called. I was Nina. He paused and he said, You are who you say you are. Come and see me. I said, where are you? And he said, I'm in Zurich. Write down this address. Number 6. You have to bring I got into the car and I drove to Zurich. And I found the house. I rang the doorbell. This old man opened the door with long white beard. a Very traditional Jewish dress, of like a rabbi. He just looked at me, didn't say a word. He held out his hand and led me into the house. It was quite strange because the living room was full of young kids, all religious Jewish kids, and they were staring at me like they were seeing a ghost. As it turns out, later when I saw the great-grandfather's photograph, when he was young, he had sort of my face. He asked me one question. He said, is Akiva your father alive? I said, yes. He said, where is he living? I said, in in Toronto, Canada. He said, please call him. And I dialed the phone. My dad answers the phone. I said, Dad, remember I used to drive you crazy when I was a kid trying to find out if anybody was left alive from our family after Auschwitz? And you always said that you felt in your heart that your cousin Yitzhak might have made it to Switzerland. He said, yes. I said, Dad, sit down. He's standing next to me, he said, what? put him on the phone. And I observed that Yitzhak started talking to my father in Yiddish. And all I understood from the conversation was that they were going to the family name by name. And it was obvious that they are the only two left alive from a very large family. So they reconnected after half a century. But that's not the story. About six months later, I received a call from Edgar Bronfman, who at that time was the president of the World Jewish Congress. And he asked me to come to his office and said to me, you know, the Jews are leaving the Soviet Union and they're going either to Israel or to the United States. But he said, surprisingly, not every Jew wants to leave. They don't want to leave. So he said, as president of the World Jewish Congress to form what later became the Russian Jewish Congress. And he asked me to go and speak to an individual on his behalf. He mentioned to me that the man he wanted me to go and visit was kind of like a guy by the name of Vladimir, since I never heard of this guy. And then I recall that Rothman said a word that I never heard before. He said, "Kuzinski is an oligarch. I didn't know what an oligarch was. In any case, I found myself on a flight to Moscow, and I ended up uh, on the same flight with a major Jewish philanthropist from Toronto also, Albert Reichman, who is probably the man who single handedly responsible responsible for the release of all the Russian Jews to go to Israel, history will speak about him. He's still with us. He just wrote a book, but only for his family, to describe all the behind-the-scenes meeting with the Soviet leaders and what he had to do to negotiate the release of Russian Jews to go to Israel. But that's another conversation. And when we landed in Moscow, Mr. Reichman said, "Listen, I'm really hungry." Uh, do you think there's a kosher restaurant here? He's an Orthodox man. So I asked the, I asked the driver that came to pick us up. I speak some Russian. And I said, is there a, yeah, there is. And he takes us to this restaurant. And we walk in and we sit down we start eating. And I end up sitting next to a young man who looks like a very young theater person with a very nice black beard. Very intense guy starts talking to me and he speaks with what amounts to a good Brooklyn accent and this uh, middle of Moscow. So I said, excuse me, are you from Brooklyn? He says, no, I went to school there for a while. He said, actually, I was born in Europe. And I said, what do you do here? He said, I'm right. you're a Rabbi. Fine. We started talking. We spent about an hour together. And at the end, the rabbi asked me, tell me. Have you ever been to Moscow? I said no. This is my first. Sure. He said, uh, "Why don't I pick you up at your hotel at 8 a.m. tomorrow I'll give you a tour." I'm anxiously to waiting at the door next morning. A Russian car, a Ghibli, drives up and the rabbi gets out. But luckily, he brought me a very warm coat and one of the Russian fur hats because it's bitterly cold. It was January, and he took me around Moscow, showed me the Kremlin, this and that, and. We were at Red Square, and it was bitterly cold, but I noticed that there was a lineup of nearly a mile long of people in front of a building, and I asked him, what is this? And he said, this is the Lenin Mausoleum, and they were coming to see Lenin. And I looked at him, and I said, you know, the truth is, I'd like to see for myself, but I'm not going to line up. So he showed that he had a sense of humor. He looked at me, and he said, if you have 100 bucks on you, Give it to the guards. they bring him out for you. <laughs> anyway, we spent the day together and spent the next three days together. And then I flew back. And on the way back, I stopped in Budapest to meet with the new U.S. ambassador and Congressman Tom was from California at home with the U.S. ambassador. And the embassy was supposed to send a driver to pick me up at Budapest airport. Then I arrived, the driver, but I knew where the embassy was located. So I took a taxi, and on the way, we drove by the apartment that used to belong to my dad, and it later gave it to his niece, uh, who ran a culture restaurant in Budapest. So I said to the taxi driver, I said, and I went around to say hello to my cousin. I walk in, she was very, very surprised to see me. She said, where are you coming from? And I said, I'm coming from Moscow, we're talking about the formation of the first Russian Jewish Congress. She smiles at me. She said, have you met Benghaz? I said, Benghaz who? She said, you know, the chief rabbi of Moscow. I said, yeah. yeah. I said, he drove me to the airport this morning in Moscow. I said, well, how have you known him? She said, well, he comes to Hungary frequently and because I run the kosher restaurant, he eats in our restaurant. And then she looks at me and she said, Do you know who he is? I said, Yes, she spent the last few days with him. She said, No, no, no. Do you know who he is? I said, You're asking me a very strange question. Who is he? She said, You know your father's cousin Giza? I said, Yeah. She said, He is his grandson. I was stunned. I was stunned because I met this man in random restaurant in moscow and it turns out that he's my cousin about three months later the above mentioned vladimir Kusinski, who was a media magnet who owned a television network called ntv on the radio network called echo Mosque, and called a newspaper called simonia yeah. which means today he came to speak to the u.s congress about and ended up coming to New York for a meeting with the then owner of CBS television, Larry Tisch. I'm in New York, my phone rings, and it's Kucinski, whom I just met not too long ago in Moscow. And he said, I'm on the way to the city, I'm staying at the Carlisle Hotel at 76th and Madison, come and meet me there, I want to talk to you. So I went there. And as it turned out, he was on the way to the Regency Hotel, which at that time and still is owned by Lowe's Corporation, which was controlled by Mr. Tish, Larry Tish. And he said, why don't you ride with me over to meet Larry Tish? And we're in the car with Gusinsky and his colleagues. And he starts talking Russian on the phone. And I hear him saying, da, 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 pink, da, da, da. And I said to him, is that Pinchas Goldschmidt? He said, yes. I said, can you give me the phone? And I said, Pinchas, this is Gabe Err. Oh, he said, it's so nice to meet you. You know, I'm coming to New York to visit my in-laws in Monsie. I would love to see you. You're a lot of fun to be with I said, Pinchas, stop. Do you know who I am? He said, what a stupid question. Of course, I just like your mask I said, let me ask you a question, Pinchas. What does this mean to you? Number six, Zuri. and Bay, Zurich. Silence. Then he said, how would you know that address? I never told you that address. I said, is that the address of somebody named Yitzhak Schwartz? He said, yes, he is my grandfather. How do you know that address? I said, because I'm your cousin. Years later, when my daughter got married because the rabbi conducted the marriage ceremony and under the fuba, which was made out of the Talit of my late, late father he told told the story of how we were reunited after so many years
0: well gabe it's emotional listening to to this story i'm incredibly grateful that you shared it with with us and with me you are born in Hungary in 1950. You fast-forwarded to 1989. Can you tell us about how you, how you made your way to Toronto? If you do the numbers,
1: I grew up under the harshest years of Stalin in Soviet occupied Hungary, and the Soviet leader at the time was Stalin. Very few people know this, that Stalin was actually responsible for more dead people than Adolf Hitler. Very few people know that. And living, being Jewish in a small community of Holocaust survivors in a small town next to the Soviet border where our daily lives were basically ruled by the KGB, it was very challenging to say the least. My father did his best to support the family under the communist rule. And I must add that after the war, before the war, the Nazis took everything, our house, our land, our vineyards, our possessions, everything. And after the war, my father, who was a survivor, came back, started from nothing, and built up a wonderful business. and. We actually owned the largest home in our town, and then one day, my dad was away on a business trip. It was two a.m., and there was a knock on our door. I was alone with my mom, and my mom opened the door, and there were two very scary people standing at the door, wearing—I never forget—very long uh, leather coats, and one of them had a really scary, wine color mark on his face, covering half his face, and they were there from the KGB. And they told my mom that our house was being requisitioned for KGB headquarters. And my mom was given 10 minutes to pack and leave the house. So I ask you this, what do you pack when you're given 10 minutes? Is it your family pictures? Is it your documents? Is it your valuables? Is it your uh, candelabra? Is it the family's pictures on the wall? What is it that you pack when you give it ten minutes? I was there. I remember this
0: as it was yesterday.
1: What what year is this? This was uh, 1955. I was five years old. So by the time my dad returned, our house was KGB headquarters with an armed guard standing at the front door and he couldn't understand what happened. I won't go into what happened to us because it's another story, but we were taken out, taken in by gypsies. And when I remember those days, I still get itchy because I was covered with lice the first day, A they were the only ones who to took us in. When my father returned and found out where we were, he took us to his sister's house and got us back on track and started his life yet again the third time. But that's not what I want to talk to you about. What I want to talk to you about is the year 1964. I was 14 years old, and I had an uncle who lived in Budapest, which was somewhat more, a place somewhat more welcoming to things Jewish. And I arrived in Budapest at the time of Purim. And there was a uh, hall, a Jewish center, a cultural center in Budapest, that was called the Goldmark Hall. It's still in existence. And I went there for Purim and it was for me a very, Uh, refreshing experience because living in this small town, you could not openly be Jewish. And in Budapest, you sort of nobody cared. So I was there and I was attending uh, a technical high school. So I had a uniform. Our school had a school uniform and a cap. So I'm at this party and they're dancing. And I see Two identically dressed girls, about my age, obviously identical twins, were sitting on the side waiting for somebody to take them to dance. So I went and I asked one of them, and she came and we danced and I spoke to her and she did not utter a word. She smiled at me throughout the dance and I walked her back, I thanked her. And I thought it was a little strange, about 10 minutes later, this very well-dressed man walks over to me, very elegantly, this man. And in flawless Hungarian, he said to me, um, were you the young man who just danced with my daughter? I said, oh, she's your daughter? He said, yes, and she would like to invite you to Shabbat dinner. I said, oh my God, this is my dream come true. And, but how do I ask the father what's wrong with the Lord? I was talking to her during the dance, and she didn't answer me. So I said, excuse me, sir, but I thought like she was deaf or mute or bold. I didn't know. So he started laughing. He said, oh, she didn't answer because she doesn't speak a word of Hungarian. I said, but you do, so, sir. He said, yes, but my, my daughters don't speak Hungarian. He said, by the way, my name is Akkadian, and I'm the Israeli Council General here in Budapest. So this is how I ended up for my first Shabbat dinner at the home of the Israeli council general in 1964 on a street called Gorky Street in Budapest. At first, the Hungarian policeman stationed at the entrance wouldn't want to let me in. But then I talked my way in, and I was seated at this long table. At the head of the table sat the uh, council general, and next to him is two daughters. And he sat me on his other side. And at the other end of the table sat a man with very thick glasses, and he spoke some Hungarian, but nobody else at the table did. And the man at the other end of the table, at the end of the dinner, asked me a question. He said to me, can you close your eyes and imagine that you're walking down the street in Tel Aviv you, Muslim? and tell me what you see. So I closed my eyes and I said, Well, I see a lot of very religious Jews in traditional garden with long no beards. And I see people going by on camels and donkeys. And everybody at the table just cracked up laughing. That was our concept in Eastern Europe with what Israel looked like. And after the dinner, the man with the thick glasses, he said, come with me. And he took me downstairs to the basement. And he put on a film. I never forget. There were no VCRs at the time. It was a 16 millimeter movie projector. And he showed me a film about life in Israel. And it absolutely blew my mind. When I saw a Jew, driving a tractor, working the fields, a Jewish soldier with a gun. It was unthinkable for us Eastern European Jews. It was, it was, it was an island. So I was doing to film. He asked me, he said, do you like reading? I said, yes. He said, look, I'm going to give you a book. It's a Hungarian translation of a book by a man named Leon Uris. And the book is called Exodus. He said, but I'm warning you, if they catch you with it, it's an illegal publication in Hungary. You're not supposed to read it because they consider it Zionist propaganda, and you can get into trouble for it. Well, anything that was illegal to read was of great interest to me. (laughs) (laughs) So I asked him for four copies of the book, and I put them under my jacket, and my jacket was, of course, my high school uniform. And I went home, and... I read my copy of the book under the cover because electricity was very expensive and my landlady turned off the lights at midnight, but I went under the cover with a flashlight and I read this book all of Friday night, the next day on Saturday and Saturday night and Sunday, and I fell asleep. And I slept in, and I did not show up for my 8 o'clock class at school on Monday morning. I showed up at 10 o'clock. I walked in, and my teacher said, Oh, it's nice of you to show up, young man. Come and see me in my office at lunchtime. I knew I was in trouble. I went to this man, who used to be a priest, by the way, before communism came. And I think he knew I was Jewish. And he closes his door and he said, okay, why were you late? I said, sir, I'm sorry I slept in. He said, you slept in? You never slept in before. Why did you? I said, I was tired. Tired for what? I said, I was reading a book all, of, all weekend and I got tired. I fell asleep. I told him the truth. And he said, so what? what book did you read? I said, sir, I'm very sorry. I can't tell you that. I said, what do you mean you can't tell? Me? I said, sir, if I tell you, I will get into trouble, and you can get into trouble. I'm not telling you what book I was reading. He said, you understand, you're in trouble for missing class, so you better tell me what book you were reading. And I said, I, I, I can't. He said, okay, here's the deal: you tell me what book you were reading, and you won't get into trouble. So oh, I won't get into trouble. sir. I have the book in my bag. He said, bring it in. He looks at it. He said, where did you get this book? I said, I can't I sir. I can get into trouble, and you can get into trouble. He said, OK, leave it with me, and we'll talk about this another day. A week later, he comes in, and he said, you're honest with me. I read the book. Can you get me some more copies of this book? I said, for whom? He said, I have a lot of Jewish friends. They would like to, but I said, you understand, they'll get into trouble. He said, ah, just get me a book. So I called my new friend, the council general, and he said, would you like to come for Shabbat dinner Friday night? And from there on for about a month, I loaded up every, every night onto my jacket. And I smuggled these books into the city and through my teacher, who was a former priest, uh, a lot of people started reading Exodus in Budapest. There was only one place in the city where you could get fresh meat. During communism, there was nothing. The, the, the stores were empty, the shelves were empty. In fact, most people who walked around the, the capital uh, walked around always with a plastic bag in their pocket, just in case they saw a line up somewhere. That meant they were selling something. So it doesn't matter what it was. You will get in line and you have a plastic bag in your pocket to take home whatever you were able to buy. Whether it's a loaf of bread or a pair, pair of Chinese shoes. It doesn't matter. So that's how we live. And one place I visited where I could get fresh food. Now, this is very important that you make note of it. Because... There is an organization, a Jewish organization still in existence, called the Joint Distribution Committee. They had an operation in Vienna, and they were helping Hungarian Jews, even in the worst years of communism. And in this particular case, there was a food truck coming every week, once a week before Shabbat, from Vienna, bringing food from Israel, and especially fresh, kosher meat, where the average Hungarian couldn't see other than horse meat or or maybe some, some pork in some of the stores. So there was an orphanage, a Jewish orphanage in Budapest. And although, thankfully, I wasn't an orphan, I would go there every Friday to eat because I got fresh meat Currency of the Joint Distribution Committee. So when I ended up in America years later, the first thing I decided to uh, support was the Joint uh, Distribution Committee because they allowed us
0: in Eastern Europe behind the Iron Curtain to have fresh food. So Gabe, I, I know you moved from Israel to Hungary or after Hungary. Can you tell us a little bit about life in Israel and how you came to Canada? One day I was in
1: the orphanage in Budapest having my kosher meal. where suddenly somebody started screaming, Razia, Razia. I didn't know what the hell Razia meant. It means raid, as in a police raid. And suddenly a bunch of policemen ran in. And as soon as I saw policemen uh, with uh, rubber clubs in their hands, I ran and I ran into the refrigerator of the kitchen that held all the food, all the fresh food. I knew where the refrigerator was. I locked myself into the refrigerator. And I waited until the noise died died down outside. I took a peek. I thought everybody was gone. So I came and I climbed up on top of the refrigerator and there was a small uh, window. I it opened to the backyard of the orphanage, and I jumped out. And all I remember is that I landed, something hit me on the head, head and I went dark. When I was when I woke up, I was handcuffed to a metal chair at the police station, and there was a, just like in the movies, a light in my face, and I saw a cigarette smoke behind the light, and somebody was asking me questions, and the question they kept asking me, who gave you the book? And I just answered, what book? Then they hit me. And the man asked me again, who gave you the book? And again, I said, what book? And they hit me harder. The third time, the man kicked me with the heavy army boots. And he ended up, because I was already bent forward on the chair. I was, I was handcuffed to the chair with my hands behind me. And when I bent forward, this man kicked me with his heavy boot on top of my forehead. You see the crack of my phone there, right there? Yeah. That's that's my reminder of this episode. But I would not tell who gave me the book. But they knew. They brought in uh, a dossier that had my name on it. And he waved the threw on and then he sent me back to a seven, where I spent three days and three, three nights, and then they let me out. All I was thinking, how will I explain my absence in school for three days? And so when I went back, I was pretty banged up. My face was still black and blue, so my teachers asked me what happened. And I made up a story that, you know, because weekends I worked at the rail yard unloading coal with a pitchfork. And I told them, I made up the story that they opened the coal door and I was under the coal coming out and that's why I looked the way it was. And they accepted it, nothing happened. Fast forward, the year is now 1970. I am working at a newspaper as a photographer. I'm summoned to the local KGB office. The next morning, 9 a.m., I report to the KGB. I go up to the third floor and the science and political section. I knocked on the door. I went in and I saw an office the size of a ballroom, really. It must have been a ballroom before. There was a big crystal chandelier in. And at the other end of the room, There was a huge desk with a very small guy in civilian clothes sitting behind it. He said, Come in, come in, sit down. And I said, quite funny, I thought it was a funny situation. I said, "Uh, to what do I owe the honor of being invited to the KGB? So the guy said, No, you didn't do anything wrong. I just we just want a conversation with you. And then they started asking me questions about my colleagues at the newspaper do they tell any political jokes and this and that and i knew where it was going and i i decided that i will not be the one ratting out my my colleagues but that's what they wanted and at the end of the conversation the guy started screaming at me Mm -hmm. and he hit the table so hard in, in front of him on the desk there was a, an inkwell because at that time they used the old-fashioned pens that you had to dunk ink in. And he hit his desk so hard that the inkwell jumped up and he covered his clothes which really infuriated him. And he was screaming left and right and then he said, we know everything about you, you're a Jew, you're a traitor to your country. He are a Zionist. Frankly, I didn't even know what a Zionist was. And he pulled out the same dossier that I saw before with my name on it, but it was a lot thicker. And he said, we know everything. And he put the dossier in front of me and opened it. And what do I see in the dossier? Photographs of me back in 1964, coming out of the Israeli consulate with my jacket, Filled with books, I didn't realize that the policeman at that time who was uh, stationed at the entrance took a photo of everybody that came in and out. So I could not not, uh, deny that it was me. And he basically said to me, we know everything about you. We don't trust you. You're a traitor to the Hungarian nation. And you have to prove your loyalty by becoming an informant to us. Well, it didn't sit well with me. And I said, well, I'm very sorry, sir, but, you know, I'm just a young kid. What do you want from me? He said, here's what I want. We will uh, enroll you in a different school soon. You come back, and in the meantime, you sign this piece of paper that basically said this conversation never took place. I put a brave face on. I signed it. And I made it all the way up to the park in in front of the KGB building. And I sat down on a bench and my knees started shaking uncontrollably because this was not funny because I was afraid that it would get my my parents into trouble because that's how the KGB operated. So I went back to the newspaper and my boss, who happened to be Jewish actually, he was a cigar smoker. I saw that when I walked in the cigar was shaking in his mouth. He was so nervous. And he said, what was this all about? Why did they call it the KGB? And I said, basically nothing. You know, they were just asking me questions. I didn't tell them why. And from that moment on, I decided that I had to get out of that country. During the uh, Second World War, my father was together with a man named Joseph Lefkowitz. And Lefkowitz, was deathly ill, he had typhoid fever. And my dad nursed him back to life. And by the time this episode took place in my life, Levkovich had a very big job. He became the publisher of the Hungarian Army newspaper magazine. It was called Red Flag. And my fat my father figured that if the KGB wants to put me into the Army, there's one way to get out of the Army. To get employed by the Army paper, and then they will take me to the Army. And he took me to this man in Budapest, yeah. Lefkowitz. He told them what happened, and Lefkowitz, we yeah. hired. And I started working as a photographer at the Army magazine. And when the phone call was supposed to come from the KGB, he did not so I thought I was free, but one day they called me in the office and they said the KGB is looking for you. They want you to come into their office, and I was really scared. I decided to get out. The army magazine had an assignment board, on which you could request the two cars, two Russian-made cars, two Volga cars. It was called, and if you went out on assignment, you had to put in a request for one of those cars with a driver. And I see there was an assignment on the Austrian border with Hungary uh, to write about how efficiently the Hungarian border border guards handled the traffic between Austria and Hungary. And when I saw the words Austrian border, I figured this is my chance. Fast forward 11 days later, I crossed the border at night, getting to the area that was laden with landmines, but I knew where the landmines were. And I ended up in Austria. In Austria, I got arrested by the Austrian police, and they were going to give me back to Hungary. Through a series of events, I ended up at the Israeli consulate in Vienna because the police officer, the Austrian police captain that was assigned to be my translator and interrogator told me that he was half-Jewish, but they didn't know his mom was Jewish. And he said, you know, anybody who is Jewish can show up at an Israeli diplomatic mission and say, I'm Jewish, and they give you citizenship. And that's exactly what happened. That's how I ended up in Israel. They sent me to kibbutz to learn Hebrew. And after that, I, when I spoke enough Hebrew, I started actually working for an Israeli newspaper called Marif. And I was lucky because my editor was of Hungarian background, and I was able to write. My articles in Hungarian and they it translated to Hebrew. While at uh, the university, one day, there was a visiting group from UJ Federation in Montreal. And uh, as I was walking out of the school library, I heard a couple in the back of the visiting group speaking Hungarian. So I went over and said, Hi, I speak Hungarian. Oh, you do? Come walk with us. We are having lunch, lunch. I was always hungry. So he, he took me into the dining room and we spoke and he gave me a card. And his name was Thomas O. And he was the president of UJ Federation Montreal at the time. And he said, If you ever come to Canada, look me up. And he gave me his card do well, you know, three months later, at the assignment meeting at the newspaper, somebody mentioned that somebody is going to be sent to Canada to interview Thomas O'Hare, the head of UJ Federation. So I put up my hand and I said, uh, I know him. Can I get the assignment? And they said, well, you don't even speak English. I said, that's okay. He speaks how it in. you don't even know him. So I pulled out his business card I showed up and I got the assignment. I'm now in Montreal, the interview is done. Now, what what year is this? This is uh, 1971. Okay. Um, I'm in Montreal, and uh, before I went to Canada, I wrote a letter to my parents in Hungary that I was going to Canada. And my father wrote back that there was a man with whom he went through the Holocaust and they were friends from before the Holocaust. His name is Nicholas Binkler. And I should look him up. So I asked my host, Mr. mr Heck, in Montreal. I said, Mr. Heck, do you know a guy named Nicholas finkler He said, let's look in the phone book. He said, no. He said, are you sure he lives in Montreal? I said, I don't know. My dad said he lives in Canada. He said, let's look at the uh, director assistance for Toronto. He might be there. What do you know? They find Nicholas Winkler. I call up. And I speak to the man in Hungarian. He is totally freaking out when he hears that uh, I'm the son of Akiva, who basically was his best friend before the war. Come and visit me. So Mr. Hack, I had no money. Mr. Hack bought me a ticket. I flew to Toronto. And I met Mr. and Mrs. Winkler. Fast forward. I went to a trade show two days later in Toronto. And I'm walking around the aisle. And I see a girl. And I go, and I'm just staring at her, but she ends up speaking to a guy who I know speaks Hungarian. So I go to the guy and I greet him. And he said, why don't you say hello to me in lady? I said, excuse me, uh, I don't speak English. He said, OK, that's OK. She speaks Hungarian. So I said, hello. She said, hello. And when I get this far, there's a hand on my shoulder. I turn around and who's behind me? Mr. Winkler whose house I went to before. I said, Mr. Wendler, what are you doing here? He said, well, why not doing here? What are you doing talking to my daughter? I said, anyway, she's not my wife. (laughs) Fast forward, the wedding comes. I invite my parents, and of course, they both refused exit visas by the Hungarian communist government due to the fact that they have been arrested and they had quote-unquote criminal background. What was the criminal offense? That I escaped, and I went to Israel. So for that reason, they were in jail. I forgot to tell you that. And so my parents refused uh, visas to come to my wedding in Toronto. Four days before the wedding, I get a telegram. I'm arriving tonight on Air Canada, such as flight. Meet me in the airport, Mom. I was shocked. I'm at the airport with my fiance my good in laws and there's my mom, whom I didn't think I would ever see again. And she comes, and I introduce her to Susan, my fiancé, and to my father-in-law. They hug, and then I said, this is my future mother-in-law, Mrs. Smith. Mm-hmm. My mom looks at the lady, and they start crying, right at the entrance of the airport, crying. What's going on? So I was born in 1950. April 12, 1950. The day before I was born in a small country hospital, my mom was together with a lady with whom she was in Auschwitz. And that lady delivered a dead baby. And then I was born the next day in that same small hospital. That lady is my mother-in-law. I decided to stay in Canada because my wife was from there. I did every odd job you imagine. I worked in a pharmaceutical factory. I worked at a gas station. But my dream was always to become a journalist again, which I did in Hungary before and then in Israel. One day I was invited to an event. It was some kind of a charity event and my, my, my English was non-existent at the time. And then I realized that charity is such an important part of life, certainly in the Jewish community. And then I remember that we had the charity box in our house back in Hungary. We called it a And no matter how little you had, you shared. You always gave. And I remember that in my house back in Hungary, my parents always invited the poorest people out the street for a dinners. And when I was in Canada, I realized that in North America, the culture of giving is actually celebrated. And I decided to publish something that salutes this culture of giving. I had two basic problems. I spoke no English and I didn't understand to my name, but it had been And with the help of a couple of friends, I started a publication, which is now 48 years young. And I must tell you, it, it sounds crazy, but after the fourth issue of my magazine, my own publication, I couldn't read or speak enough English to understand my own magazine. That's how we started. We expanded it to the United States with the help of one person. with a huge impact on my life. Isaac Stern, the violinist, once invited us to Carnegie Hall. After the concert, he pointed to the role and he said, why are you doing this publication in Canada? And he said, these are the people you should be profiling. And he pointed to these plaques on the wall. And he said, this man gave us $10 million. This man gave us $20 million. And never heard numbers like this. And I said, oh, sure, Mr. Stern. I'm just going to call them and say, hey, let's have coffee. He said, "You won't have to either. And the next day he introduced me to two people. One was Elie Wiesel, who immediately became the founding board member of Lifestyles Magazine and served on our board until his death. And the other person who introduced me to was uh, uh, Edgar Bronfman, who at that time was already the president of the World Church Congress. And Mr. Bronfman basically allowed us access to all of his membership. So the first readers of my magazine were all the donors to the American or Jewish Congress. And that's how it started. And the rest is history. Later, I had the good fortune of uh, meeting Warren Buffett. And in a conversation, he asked me a question. He said, I see this magazine features a lot of Jewish donors, but one am I chucked liver? And he said, you know, you should expand this. And the current format of the magazine today basically reaches every major charity right across the united states and now globally and uh, we are very lucky because we are now working the third generation within specific families where we literally started with the grandparents generation continued with the parents and now it is the younger people and this is how we got involved with the nexus organization because they are the grandchildren of those families that I originally started with.
0: As a member of Nexus, I've really enjoyed reading the publication um, on a quarterly basis as I receive it in the mail. I, I most recently enjoyed the, the piece on Robert Smith and the amazing work he's been doing in paying off all the student debt at Morehouse College. When did you decide to shift from all Jewish donors to, to really in interviewing them, to being inclusive across the board?
1: that's almost uh, more than 20 years ago that changeover happened and it it was a natural expansion Um, but you mentioned something about bob smith i want to tell you that in the issue that you're referring to our readers have given in the year of 2019 in individual philanthropic non-corporate philanthropic gifts the incredible total of 25 and a half billion dollars in an 11-month period. So we have this one issue, the one that you're referring to, where we literally, person by person, individual by individual, name by name, cause by cause, and amount by amount, we publish who gave what to whom and why, with the purpose of inspiring the next generation of donors but there's an interesting thing i have to tell you after 48 years of publishing one of the hardest decisions that i have to make after all these years every 60 days the decision is who goes on the cover of that particular issue and the issue that you are referring to once again uh, featured individuals who gave 25 a billion dollars in the year of 2019, among them three individuals who have made a billion dollar commitment to causes, yet I did not put any of those three individuals on the cover. And the reason was very simple. When I happened to watch a few months ago, a broadcast about the graduation ceremony at Monmouth College, when Bob Smith, who I happen to know, because he is the chairman of Carnegie Hall, which was originally saved by the Isaac Stern who brought me to New York. When I heard him say that he was taking care of the educational cost of this entire class, it hit me how directly it would impact those young lives who can enter the workforce without a cent of debt. And that is the reason why I put all undercover.
0: Gabe, beyond Lifestyle Magazine that educates so many of us to think bigger and differently about giving back and the impact that we're going to make, you've also been an incredible philanthropist yourself, being involved in both Jewish and non-Jewish organizations, such as uh, Children of Chernobyl, Mount Sinai Hospital, the Center for Cantorial Arts, and many others. Um, as you think about your philanthropy and legacy, what are the causes today you're most passionate have having had the privilege to support? With the success that you've had?
1: Well, it's it's not an easy question to answer. But I want to tell you something. When I was very young, I once read the book of a very famous rabbi who was a great teacher, and there was a line in that book. And in Hebrew the line sounds like this: Mikol Melam died His Khalti. And it translates from all my students. I have learned something. So as you can imagine, the thousands and thousands of philanthropists that we had the good fortune of uh, interviewing over the past 48 years, uh, I tried to attend most of those interviews in person. And like I said, from every encounter, I walked away somewhat enriched, having learned something more. It's like a big puzzle. And each person is sort of like a missing piece. One person who had a major impact on my life is a former fellow Canadian, a man named Jeff Skoll. Jeff was the first CEO of eBay. And when he sold his part in eBay, he decided to do essentially what my magazine does, but to use the language of films. And he started 15 years ago uh, a studio called Participant Media. And the first film was uh, An inconvenient Truth, which was the first film to address the issue of climate change, for instance. And if you look at the many, many films that they, his studio made over the years, and I had the great privilege of being his personal advisor, senior advisor, I think that the emphasis on the part senior, um, he really he was a leader in entrepreneurial philanthropy. In fact, the term that is used today, every day, social entrepreneur was actually coined by Jeff Skoll. And through his films and through his storytellings, uh, well, first of all, in the last 15 years from starting zero, not having known anything about the film business, he was, his works were nominated to 76 Oscars and got, I believe, 12 of them today. And every time I spoke to him, he opened my eyes to yet another cause that I didn't know about. So for me, it's a learning experience and my own personal philanthropy follows this very very closely when i see something new that compels me to get involved um i do my best to give it as much time attention and sometimes basically my means uh, to to make a difference almost every day there's a new thing two weeks ago Somebody showed me a film that suddenly come out for another year. The film talks about human trafficking in children, as young as six to ten years old. I never understood the severity of the problem, and uh, aside from the numbers that they talk about of children that are uh, kidnapped from their families and sold into slavery today. I was stunned to learn that almost 100% of the customers for these children are Americans. So for the next few months, I will do my best to show this film to as many lawmakers as possible and law enforcement people as possible because I believe that US laws need to be chained to stop this horrible, horrible practice putting young children into sexual slavery. This is the latest that I just got involved in. But almost every day I learned something new, and again, the one thing that I can do is I have a very good role of this. And if I need to get to somebody about a cause, I usually can pick up the phone and call basically anybody around the world if I see that they can make a difference.
0: Before we wrap up, I know that you recently had the birth of a granddaughter, Mazel Tov. As you think about passing the values of Jewish continuity and tikkun olam down to the next generation, what advice can you share with all of us from the wisdom you've collected over the years? Giving advice is one thing, but if you don't live the advice that you give,
1: then it's not very helpful. I tell you the two stories that I will tell my grandchildren, one that they were old enough to understand. One story, of course, is their heritage, whether they like it or not, that on May 29, 1944, six SS soldiers arrived in our little town of 7,600 Jews. And within three days, almost none of them stayed alive because they were murdered gas and in the Auschwitz concentration camp among the 186 members of our extended family. i tell you why I mentioned this and i tell you why I will teach my grandchildren about this. Many years ago, I was involved with a gala for the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel. And this was a very special gala, it took place at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. and. This council saluted Jewish Nobel Prize winners. There were 44 Jewish Nobel Prize winners at the head table. And I sat there and I said, oh my God, look what we have given to the world in medicine, in literature, in sciences. It's, it's, it's extraordinary just to be in the same room with this kind of being power it was an overwhelming experience for me. And then as I was sitting there, I thought of something that happened to me right after the Yom Kippur War in 1973, like two weeks after the war. I went to an Israel bond event, and the keynote speaker was former Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir. And after the speech, I was invited to interview her for my magazine. And I was alone with her in the room, and the interview was done. And then she looked at me and she said, Son, you have an accent. Where were you born? I said, hungry. She said, was your family touched by the shore? I said, yes, 186 members. And she looked at me and she said, you know, this is the greatest tragedy of our people. The world doesn't seem to understand what it means to systematically build a system with the latest technology and science to eliminate a whole People, she said, the tragedy is that the world doesn't understand that six million, six million, for them is just a statistic, it's a number. But the real tragedy is this just think of it. It's not only the six million that we lost, but it is the generations that will never happen after them. And at that moment, when I was sitting with the Nobel laureates, I kept thinking how many potential Nobel laureates among those who would have been the descendants of the six million, how many Einsteins, how many doctors, how many healers, how many poets, how many leaders, how many scientists. And you know what? It's not just the Jewish loss. It's the world's loss too. And this is precisely what I want to teach to my grandchildren.
0: Gabe, your story is truly touching. I am so blessed to have learned so much from you today and to have had the privilege to include you on my podcast. I'm grateful for our friendship and for you spending the time with me. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. This is Brian Geister. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I'll be back next time with another story featuring an incredible philanthropist who's overcome all kinds of adversity and the horrors of the Holocaust, coming to North America and building an incredible company. Thank you so much and hope to see you again soon.